starts us, and this is what leads Paul, and what he's going to say in verses 15 through 20, he's speaking of Christ, and he said, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is what leads Paul into his, these next phrases. If you'll stand with me, we'll read verses 15 through 20. Verse 15, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. If you were to continue on, you would see that Paul again applies the gospel to the Colossian the people in Colossae, he says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So if you can imagine a picture frame with me, the frame is the gospel. This is what Paul has said. To you, Christ has died and reconciled you to himself. And then right in the middle, the picture that he's going to give is, this is who Jesus is. This is who the Jesus is that rescued you, that drew you to himself, that drew you to himself. And so as we begin, I would just ask a, ask a question. This is an illustration. How many of you would say that when you, when you got married, you learned a few things about the person that you married that you didn't know before? Would anybody agree with that? Some of those were for good, some of those were for bad, you know, regardless. But Katie and I, we met in New Orleans, and the first time I saw her, I just thought she was gorgeous. We were at church in New Orleans, and I just asked a friend, I said, who is that? And he started telling me a little bit about her. And so all I, heard, all I knew was what I heard from other people. I didn't know her personally, and it was a little while before I would uh, meet her and be able to get to know her a little bit. But as people told me, I, would just, I, I had no option but to believe what they said about her. I, I just had to, I had to trust them. I had to go on their word. But then eventually we ended up meeting and uh, I just started talking to her. I already thought she was beautiful, and so it didn't take much. You know, I just I started talking to her and just learning a lot about her. But all of us, we could say, are kind of like an onion. You just have to put, peel back the layers, right? And there are several layers. I like to think of myself more as a diamond, just as having different sides, you know, and I, I just shine in, in, in different ways. But all of us, the reality is, are, are more like an onion, we, we have different layers to us. But Katie and I began to get to know each other uh, better, and soon we would get married after a short time of dating. And so Katie and I have learned a lot about each other than we didn't know before we were married. And all of those things, God has used for good to strengthen us, to build our marriage, and to help us. But the idea is that there was a lot that I had to get to know about her. And the intimacy that continues to build between us, the growth in our marriage and all those things, are from the things that I continue to learn about her. The intimacy that I seek with her, that's very intentional. It doesn't happen by accident. It comes from time. It comes from experience. And this is what builds the intimacy, is the commitment through all those times and experiences together. And I would tell you that 
a relationship with Christ is very similar. You see, a marriage, you can not seek the other person and not seek to learn about them. And just the title marriage gives the illusion of intimacy, but it's not really there. It's fake. You're not really intimate with one another. And the same can happen with Christ. You can, you can come here, you give the illusion that you have a relationship with Christ, but if you don't strive to know Him and to know everything about Him, all that He is, it's an, it's an illusion of intimacy. You aren't learning, you aren't growing deeper in who Christ is. And so here's the problem that was happening in Colossae. You'll remember last week, Landon said, there were false teachers in the area. And they were coming in and they were saying things like, God couldn't have really come as a man. This couldn't happen. This doesn't happen. These were philosophers, and they were suggesting this, this is impossible. They were saying these angels are equal with Christ, and you need to worship them as well. And the Colossian believers, they were somewhat unsettled. They didn't know a lot about who Christ was, and so Paul writes this letter to tell them this is who Christ is. This is who Christ is. Don't be unsettled. Don't be led astray. And here's my concern for us, is that if you aren't striving in knowledge of Christ, if you aren't seeking knowledge of Him, you will be led astray. You'll sometimes wonder that your horoscope would come true. You'll sometimes look to it and just say, maybe, you know. Maybe the fortune cookie has something good to tell me. Maybe it'll happen. But that's not trusting Christ fully. That's not knowing who Christ is. And so, we begin in verse 15. Paul begins, and he tells us who this is. Beginning in verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. I'll give you just kind of a framework of how we're going to walk through this, pa- uh, this passage. One pastor has said that Paul reveals our Lord's true identity by viewing Him in relation to four things. God, the universe, the unseen world, and the church. And you'll see this in the passage. You first see that Christ's relationship to God, he is the image of creation. He is the firstborn who's going to continue going on about creation. And eventually he'll say he is the head of the body, the church. I would also add that Paul is concerned about showing Jesus' relationship to death. And it says concerning that, then in everything he became preeminent because he is the firstborn from the dead. And so throughout this sermon you will hear Christ's relationship to God, Christ's relationship to all creation, Christ's relationship to the church, and Christ's relationship to death. Also, it's split up into Jesus' relationship to cosmic history. You heard in the, uh, the video we just showed that God created. That was the beginning. He created. He gave life. But then also, Christ's relationship to redemptive history. We'll see that Christ was first, he was preeminent, and he created. Through him, all things were created. But then we'll also see that he is the head of the church, and he was firstborn of all uh, creation from the dead, rising from the dead. So first, Christ's relationship to God. He is the image of the invisible God. The image. Image in Greek, the same word, icon. So say icon. Okay, you're speaking Greek this morning. The word in Greek is icon. So he is the icon, but this is used in Greek thought. The icon or the image would contain the God itself. And so you see back in Israel's history when they created the golden calf, the idol, they worshipped the calf itself. And so here you see Jesus is the image, but 
in John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so a pastor says from this, in Christ the visible God became visible. So Christ as the image contains, he is God himself. He bore the perfect image of God because he was equal with him. You'll remember in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so as the image of God, Jesus bears God. He, he reflects him fully, perfectly. And so we remember this thought, Christ bore the perfect image of God. But we're also reminded here from Genesis one twenty seven. Christ being the perfect image of God reminds us if we were meant to be. It said that God created us in whose image? His. It says God created us in His image. The same language is here. We were created sinless, sinless in the image of God, but we became stained from Adam's sin and our own. And so Christ comes as the second Adam, a more perfect image, the perfect image of who God is, and the God's perfect image bearer will bring us back to what we were meant to be. And so this is why in Philippians, I mean, excuse me, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul's able to say, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So Christ comes as the image bearer of God. He shows us who God is, and then we will be conformed into his image. We will be like him one day. And now we are being more and more conformed into this image. Next, we'll see it's the firstborn of all creation, Christ's relationship to creation itself. Now, we all know we've probably heard a lot of things about this passage. Jehovah's Witnesses have long used this short phrase to say Jesus was a created being. And this has long been a heresy and a struggle in the church. But first, we'll look at the meaning of this word, firstborn. The word is prototakos. Prototakos. You like that word? Say that with me. Prototakos. Prototakos. All right. Continue to speak Greek. That's, that one's a little more difficult. This word is not just meaning created, but also can mean sovereignty or rank of authority. And so our options here, looking at the meaning of this word, is he created or is he sovereign over creation? And we're going to look at how to interpret this. There are two tests we can look at to see whether it means created or whether it means authority, sovereign over. And so the first I would say is, does it fit the context? To say that Jesus was created, would it fit the context of Colossians 1.15? And I would say, absolutely not. It says right before, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He can't be created and be the exact representation of who God is. Secondly, and, and we'll see this further through the passage, but could created be applied consistently through the scriptures when speaking of Jesus? And I'm going to give you some passages, and I'd like for you to write these down. I think these can be helpful for you as you discuss this issue, maybe outside of church. Psalm 89, 27, the meaning of firstborn here is important. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is the line of David. This is David himself, and we know that David was not the firstborn son. But what God says here is, I will make David the firstborn in terms of authority. Not just in terms of the law of being created. In Micah 5 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This is a Messiah, this is a prophecy concerning the Messiah, and it says he's from old, from ancient of days. Who is referred to as ancient of days? God himself. Only God himself in the Old Testament is referred to as ancient of days. John 1.1, the passage that Mr. David read earlier, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, to be clear, Jehovah's Witnesses also try to use this verse to say that God doesn't have to be capitalized because there's not a definite article immediately before God. But just to explain this a little further, there is a definite article before the word was God. And in Greek, the definite article at the beginning can, will also be applied to the end. And so it would, be, it would say the word was the God. And so the Jehovah's Witness interpretation of this passage is not good Greek, simply. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Who does I am apply to? Who says I am? God himself. Jesus is over and over again claiming equality with God, not to have been created, but to be with him. Equal with him. Philippians 2.6, again, what we mentioned a minute ago. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so, to test, if you try to apply it to the context, which we'll see more of in just a minute, it doesn't work to say created. If you try to apply it consistently throughout the scripture, it doesn't work to say created. Christ Jesus is authoritative over all creation, but he's not the first created one of creation. We're going to see several ways in which Jesus is related to creation. The uncertainty. Here, we'll take the universe and the unseen world together. You see in verse 16, it says, All things were created in him, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, authorities, dominions, rulers, all these things. First, Jesus' relationship to creation. He is the wisdom behind all creation. We see this because it uses the same language as the Proverbs when it speaks of wisdom. In the Old Testament, wisdom is personified. It it develops this idea of a person, but it's not explicit about who the person is. It says in Proverbs 3, 19 through 20, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped the dew. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is present with God in creation. And it's in wisdom that God is creating. In the New Testament, it's clarified who is being personified here. Christ is the wisdom through which God creates. That's what we see here. At the verse 16, it says, by him all things were created. The, the preposition there, prepositions are important. The preposition is, for in him all things were created. In Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 backs up this wisdom. Christ became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification. And redemption. So first relationship of Jesus to creation. He is the wisdom behind all of it. He is guiding it. Secondly in verse 16. He's prior to creation. If Jesus. If in all things Jesus. These things are created. If in all. In him all things are created. Jesus is obviously prior to. Verse 17. He is before all things. And the preeminent one is the one holding things together. As verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
One commentator says he is the sustainer of the universe and the unifying principle of its life. A part of his continuous sustaining activity, all would disintegrate. All would disintegrate. Next, Jesus' relationship to creation. It says all these things were created through him, but at the end of verse 16, note the very end, it says, and for him. And for him. He is the one to whom creation will give glory. He is the one to whom creation will give all glory. Creation culminates. It reaches its height in the exaltation of Christ. We all, we all love stories. We all love movies. We like to hear stories from friends and all of these things. But every time we're listening to a story, whether we're reading a book, watching a movie, or listening to a story from a friend, whatever, we can't wait for the climax, right? We long. The intensity builds. And we're longing for the climax, But the climax of all creation, the story of all history, is when creation gives glory to Christ. Even now, Christ is glorified through our worship and obedience. But we're waiting for a day when God will judge the earth. Christ's blood will reveal its full cleansing effect as sin will no longer be seen, but all creation will audibly sing His praise. And at that time, the climax won't reach an end. This story will stay at a climax because we will forever exalt Christ and all creation will exalt Christ. If creation, if its purpose is to glorify Christ, then it would simply be idolatry if Christ was created. But Christ is equal with God. He is the one God sent who brings salvation. And so through this, we praise the Father. We praise the Son through all eternity. This is what we'll do forever. Next, we'll look at in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This is verse 17. A bit about this in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. We know from Ephesians 6.12, if you'll turn to Ephesians 6.12 for just a moment. Paul uses this same language. In Ephesians 6.12 he says... We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Ephesians 1.21, using the same language as Colossians, Paul writes, Christ has been seated far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So as the believers in Colossae struggle with these people coming against them, as the believers in Colossae struggle with people trying to deceive them, maybe as persecution comes as well. Paul says Christ is supreme over all these things. In effect, Christ is supreme over Satan and Hitler. The things that you can see and the things that you can't see. He's sovereign over economic instability and depression, demonic forces, and the people in your workplace, your school, and your home that plague you. 
all the things that can be seen and the things that can't be seen, Christ is supreme over all. And so Paul is clear in it from Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the things that can't be seen. But what Paul is asserting is that Christ is supreme. He is sovereign. He controls even these things. They don't move without his authority. They do nothing outside of his authority. So the issue here is all people, tyrannical, wretched rulers, invisible powers, are under the authority of Christ and will be judged by him. Now, some would try to raise the issue, did God, so created, God created all things, Christ, through him, all these things were created. Does this mean that God created evil or the evil forces? That's not what Paul is trying to talk about here. Paul is simply saying, Christ is over it. So whatever suffering, whatever struggle you're in, Christ is supreme, he reigns. The issue is not, did God create it? I like what the guy said in the video. He said, trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It don't need your help. Just unlock the cage. We don't have to defend God here. He simply reigns. He simply is over all. And so all our complaining, all our wondering, all our trying to be able to put it together in our mind, the answer is simply, Christ reigns. Christ reigns. So that was, that's the cosmic picture. This is where Christ is in the cosmic picture. He was there in creation. He guided it. He is the wisdom. But next we see the re- picture of redemption, Christ's role in redemption. He is the head of the body, the church, verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If certainly, if Christ is head of all creation, Christ is head over the church, and the body submits to the guidance of the head. As the head of the church, Christ is the originator. That is a word, I looked it up. And the sustainer. If he created, through him all things were created, then certainly the existence of the church is because he created it. If the universe is sustained by his hands, then certainly the church is sustained by his hands. There's also a physical metaphor here. If the church rejects Christ as its head, it dies. It's no longer a church, but it's a deceptive social gathering. It claims to be the church, but it operates as a tool of Satan. It's deceptive because it leads others astray. And here's the, as I thought about this, I was trying to think of a picture, and I was thinking about sports athletes that uh, they bet against their own team, and then they throw the game. This hasn't happened a lot recently, but you hear about this 20, 30 years ago, especially in the news. It happened in Field of Dreams. If you've seen Field of Dreams, it talks about Shoeless Joe Jackson. But the, those guys, they would wear the uniform. They would wear the uniform. They would play on the team. But all the while, they're betting against the team, and they're wanting the team to lose. And so you, individual church members, when you don't recognize Christ as your head, you work against the church. You work against the goal of the church to bring glory to Christ. And as we, as a body, don't seek Christ as our head, as we don't submit to Him every step of the way and let Him lead our church, we are no longer the church. No longer the church. 
But it's also important that Paul highlights the church in the context of all creation. In, say, in doing this, Paul is saying the life of the church and all creation are intertwined and are leading to the same purpose. Christ is the leader of cosmic creation. Everything you, when you go outside, everything you see, it is because of Christ. It is the sustained because of Christ. But the church and cre- all creation are intertwined. And all of it will one day lead to the sole purpose of giving glory to Christ. The end are intertwined together. Verses 19 through 20. In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making blood, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verse 19, Paul's referring back to Jesus' role in creation, and he's merging it with the incarnation in history. It says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And so the one who was there in the beginning also became part of creation to the extent of even dying. The one who is prior to creation became part of it. And again, we're pointing back to Genesis 3, to Genesis. We're pointing specifically to Genesis chapter 3. There was cosmic conflict in Genesis. Work, marriage, childbearing, all these things became burdensome through the, through the pain and endurance required in them. Even in Hebrews 9, one can see the temple worship in the Old Testament required even the, old, the objects of worship to be sprinkled with blood. And so this is why in verse 20 it says, through Christ he would reconcile all things to himself. This includes all of creation. All of it was stained with sin. Whether it's on earth or in heaven, even the invisible things, all of it would be reconciled. Reading from Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 22 through 23, we can see more fully the effects of sin on the cosmos. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What we see in this passage is that creation, the cosmos, all of what God did in the beginning is intertwined with redemptive history and that God is acting in all of it to where all of it will bring glory to himself. I want to, nearing the end, I want to close with a story and they're going to put this up for you. It's rather long. Is it up? Yeah. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. And another group, a Negro boy, lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. And another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no, no hunger or hatred. 
What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. The message of Colossians 15 through 20. Is the God who through his own son created all things, started all things and continues to sustain all things, also entered his creation. He entered his creation because his creation had sinned. It had gone completely away from him. And while he was first in all things, in creating all things, he was Lord of all rulers, invisible and visible. Yet he came into his creation as a man, just a mere man, not a ruler, but just a regular man, a carpenter. And he died. He was tortured. But even in death, he rose and he has victory. So that he is the victor in all things. And so as the Colossian people face questions of, is this Christ that you proclaim, that you claim to follow now? As you face questions of, is he enough? Here's the message. He is entirely enough. You need nothing else. So in all of our self-pity, in all of our unwillingness to forgive, in all of our unwillingness to fight for joy, in our desire to complain, in our seeking out other things to satisfy us, the message of Christ is, I am everything. In all of your struggles about the things that happen to you, the message of Christ is, I am everything. Persevere. Trust in me. Be faithful. Your marriage feels like it's falling apart. I'm everything. You don't feel like you're significant enough at school, at work, whatever it may be. I'm everything. I'm sufficient. Christ says, I've come. I've died for you. I'm everything. Trust in me. All creation is on a projection to bring glory to Christ eternally. The question is, do you embrace the peace that he's offered through his own blood?
And not just at some point in the past. At some point in the past you prayed. That's not the question. Do you daily embrace His blood that's offered you peace? Do you daily embrace Him? And so as we close, we close with verses 19 through 20. In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so what frames this this story about who Christ is as cosmic creator and also as king of redemption is the gospel applied to you. Every day this week, when you start to lose hope, when you start to struggle, when you start to complain, when you start to look for other things for answers, here is the answer. His death, His blood is sufficient. You have all you need in Christ. Trust. Trust and seek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. It is so simple, and so sometimes it's so hard to, for us to just entirely... Only seek it. But Father, you have offered us all we need in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you are king. We thank you when voices from the outside come in and they try to say that you allow evil and you do all these things that they are not content with, that we can just trust in your word, that you are God, that you've redeemed us, and that you... Reconcile all things to yourself. So that one day we will be with you eternally, Lord, and we will give you glory forever. Our role will be to sing to you and to love you. Father, I pray that you would help us now. Lord, I pray for people in this room. Lord, as they endure trials, may they trust that you're sufficient. Lord, may they be encouraged by your great love, by your authority, Jesus, that you are over all things. And so nothing comes into their lives without your permission, without your authority. Jesus, I pray that your grace would be rich to them as they feel like there are things that they can't overcome. May they trust in you. May they trust that your power is sufficient, that it is great. Lord, we thank you that we can sing of your praises, Father. We thank you for reconciling us to yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen.